We're going to explore a passage this morning that for me, and I hope for you, by the time we're done, is an incredible portrait of worship. Meaningful. Beautiful. There's no symbols, there's no trumpets. In fact, there's not even any music in this passage. And there's, uh, it doesn't happen in the synagogue, the church. In fact, in the passage that we're going to take a look at in Luke 7, there's, um, there's no record of the worshiper even saying anything. But it's an amazing glimpse of what a heart that's worshiping our great God and King looks like. And what's funny is that that's all God really cares about, is our heart in worship. That's what he desires, and we'll see that here in a bit as we go through the passage together. What's funny, Jake can attest to this, when, when we're leading worship on the platform, he and I can look out and, and survey the congregation. We've got a pretty good idea who's engaged in connecting with their creator. But the reality is, we never really know. Because all we get to see from the platform is the external stuff. The hands up, the dancing, the uh, at times kneeling. And um, all we get to see is what's going on on the outside. And the reality is, it's very possible on any given weekend, during any given service, that the only one in the room who's really aligned their heart with God is the one who's sitting quietly with their head in their hands. We have no idea. Because the external stuff can be faked. The external stuff can be duplicated by people who aren't worshiping. They can be duplicated by people who don't even know the Lord. What we're going to take a look at this morning is the heart in worship. That's where we're headed. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you're going to want to get one, and someone's going to be pleased to bring it to you. I'll invite the ushers to come forward with a Bible. If you don't have one, go ahead and raise your hand, hold it up high, and they'll be glad to get you a Bible so you can follow along in Luke chapter 7. Hold it up high, and they'll find you. They're coming down the rows here. You've got a fill-in-the-blank this morning on your handout, and the the fill-in-the-blank is this. The depth of our worship will never exceed the depth of our gratitude. In Luke 7, starting in verse 36, that's going to be on page 731 for the Bibles that are being handed out. Page 731. In Luke 7, we're going to get a glimpse of a gal who's incredibly grateful. She's incredibly grateful for what she's received from the mercy giver. Luke 7:36 says this. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus would be eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman that that she is, the one that's touching him, that she is a sinner. The Pharisee in that moment was taking a look at her sinfulness 
evaluating the room. I shared with the guys at Forge a couple few weeks ago that it uh, wasn't too long ago I was coming down Industrial Avenue on my way to Bridgeway, and uh, my oldest son was in the car with me. We were trucking right along, and he says to me, Dad, there's different levels of sin, right? And uh, I said to him, well, what do you mean? Now, I think I knew what he meant, but I said, what do you mean? Because I needed time to pray. <laughs> That's what an 11-year-old will do to you. Pray without ceasing, have an 11-year-old. He's asking me questions oftentimes that I've never even thought of, and I certainly am not prepared to answer. So I was stalling so I could have a quick chat with my maker and say, okay, Lord, what are we going to do with this? What do you want me to tell him? So he said, um, when I said, what do you mean? He said, well, like, if I murder somebody, that's different than if I shove my sister off the trampoline, right? <laughs> I love him. And I said, you thinking about murdering somebody? <laughs> I just had to be sure. You never know. So um, I didn't really know what to say. In fact, what I said, I don't even know if I'm right. But the answer that I gave to him was this. Yeah, I, I think there are different levels of sin. I think there's sins that we commit that wreak havoc, more havoc than others on people. And there's... There's sins that we do that seem to leave much more damage in their wake. But what's interesting is that God treats it all the same. That the penalty for sin is the same, whether we're a murderer or a trampoline shover. <laughs> That's what I said. And I suspect that most of us in this room are probably, we tend to be trampoline shovers. I'll bet we do. But I'll bet if you're anything like me, you also categorize sin a lot like my oldest son was doing and said, well, there's some sins that are really bad. Mine, not so much. They're little sins. And I think that's what the Pharisee was doing in this story as well. That's what we're going to take a look at. Let's pray for our time and then we'll dive in and we'll walk through this passage together. Lord. What a privilege to um, have your word in front of us. As we spend our time together, God, would you take this place, this room, our hearts, farther than we can go on our own and in our own strength. Lord, would you broaden what we see about worship today? When we leave here, would you cause us and prompt us by your word to be more effective at how we offer ourselves to you? Lord, we love you, and this is a moment for us to learn how to love you more. So would you do that in this place to each one? In Christ's strong name we pray. Amen. So, Luke 7, 36. We'll start again. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So this... Uh, Religious leader, the Pharisee, the professional religious guy, invites Jesus to come over to his house for dinner. It's not clear why he did that. We're going to see in a, in a bit as we walk through the text that um, he clearly didn't have intentions of honoring Jesus. So why he did it, we don't know. 
It could have been that he was just simply trying to big shot his neighbors. You know, this is kind of, it, it's kind of as if, you know, the rabbi or the, the speaker or the sage is coming over and, and you want to say to your friends, hey, guess who's coming over for dinner tonight? And for some of them, you might say, why don't you come join us? Come check out and see what he has to, to say. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus went to his house, and in verse 37 it says, When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. She was not invited. In fact, she wouldn't have been invited. In this culture, with her reputation, she knew her reputation. The community likely knew her reputation. And in a moment, we'll see, obviously, the Pharisee knew her reputation. She would not have been invited to this meal. She would not have been welcomed to this home. But she came. She was determined. And I can only imagine what the fear would have been like for her as she would have been approaching that house. Can you imagine the argument she had in her own mind, in her own heart, hours before the meal, when she learned that the meal was happening, that Jesus was going to be there? She had a thousand and one excuses to stay away. But somehow she said no to every one of those excuses, and she was determined to come. It says that she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Now here's where it gets really wild, friends. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her perfume. No, that's not what it says at all. Then she wiped them with her hair. I'm just checking to see if you're following. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. So they're reclined at the table. I don't know if the meal is still happening or if it's done, but they're around this table, a table that she wouldn't have been welcome to come near. She wasn't welcome at the house, likely, and there's no way she would have been invited to come near the rabbi. But there she is, standing behind him, and she begins to sob. She begins to cry. Enough tears to wash somebody's feet with. I will just say, in my own mind's eye, I think that has to be a mess of tears. She was broken and undone, an emotional wreck. As tears were flowing, enough to wash the feet of Christ. And then she does the wildest thing. She starts to wipe his feet with her hair. How absurd. How humiliating. I venture to say that none of us at any time when we've been in the store and we've heard cleanup on aisle eight, we ever thought for a second, oh, I got it. Oh, wipe it up with my hair. We wouldn't do that. It's an amazing thing that she does here. It's literally humiliating to wipe off the day's dirt from somebody's feet with your hair. For her, this sign of beauty. She's a mess at this moment. She kissed his feet, humiliating, and poured perfume on them. 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I think what he should have said was, at a minimum, this guy's a prophet because he's about to answer what I'm thinking. I love it when Jesus does that. The Pharisee's thinking something, and this is what Jesus says in 40. Simon... I've got something to tell you. 
And he says, tell me, teacher. When he says that, when Simon says, tell me, teacher, the voice I hear is the voice of Eddie Haskell. (laughs) Now, I know some of you in here don't know who Eddie Haskell is. You can Wikipedia it and find out. Eddie Haskell was this guy who always kind of was conniving and up to mischief. But every time he spoke, honey was coming off of his lips, right? So we know this guy is scheming and thinking. He's calculated and he says, tell me, teacher. And Jesus says, well, Eddie, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One of them owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will you say loved him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. In the Greek, I think that's loosely translated as no, duh. (laughs) Thank you for laughing at that stuff. It's very silly stuff. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then Jesus turned to the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured out perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then Jesus says to this gal, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She was a mess. Emotional wreck. But I suspect that for the most part, as she was weeping, I don't think she was filled with remorse as much as she was filled with gratitude. In the parable that Jesus taught, he didn't liken the one who was forgiven as a, uh, a regretter. He likened it to love. I don't think in the moment that she was exclusively focusing on what a wretch she was. I think she was focused on the greatness of her God. The greatness of His mercy, the greatness of His grace, the greatness of how He has washed over her with forgiveness, the greatness of His acceptance in that moment. You notice that Jesus didn't reject what she was doing. He is so not like me. I I would have probably done something like, Hello, I'm eating. Or... They're watching you right now. But he didn't. He accepted what she brought. What she came to offer him. He was all for it. I like that about him. He received sinners. And the cool thing about her is that she knew she was one and she knew she needed a savior. The bummer is the religious professional didn't get it. He had his maker right at his dining room table and failed to see him. 
There's several things that I think are worthwhile that we can take away from this passage today. We probably won't cover all of it, but um, a few things that I think we can sink our teeth into today. The first is that her worship was intentional. That's your first jot down if you want to do it. I'm going to try like crazy to go in order. Make it easier on you. Her worship was intentional. You know, she showed up that night with something in her hand. She showed up that night with the alabaster jar of perfume. She came prepared to honor Christ in some way. There's some indication that this was probably not the first time they met. She knew who Christ was. I think she was responding to something she'd received. She may have been part of a multitude. She came that night to honor Christ and no one else in the room. She knew who he was. And the outpouring of her heart and the love that she was displaying, I think she knew what she'd already received from him. And she was coming that day to honor him. Her worship in that moment was intentional. From the afternoon forward, maybe even days prior, she knew what she was going to do and she expected to do it. Now, here's the wild thing. I don't think she did what she thought she was going to do. I think if she thought she was going to wash his feet that night, that she would have brought a towel. Don't you? She never thought, I don't think, when she left his house, hey, I'll just wipe his feet with my hair. She planned to do something, but she didn't schedule it out so much that she overlooked the opportunity to be spontaneous. There was spontaneity in what she did. She addressed and did something that was honorable in the moment. What about us? What about us when we walk through these doors on any given weekend, when we're coming in? Do we come in with the intention of bringing something to our God? Are we coming with expectant hearts to bring something to the King? Or are we just doing that religious thing we do? Do we come with intentions to worship? And are we open to being spontaneous? Or we schedule this thing so, you know, out so much, we come in think, thinking, okay, it's going to be you know, three songs, an offering, two songs, a sermon, and an outro video. Are we open at all as a congregation to what God may be stirring in your heart that maybe you would come forward or that maybe you would raise your hands? Whatever God's prompting in your heart, are you open to it? Or are you kind of holding it back? The second thing about our worship that I noticed is that it was sacrificial. Her worship was sacrificial. Make no mistake about it. The perfume she brought, it was costly for her. It, it's possible it represented part of her livelihood. It very well may have been perfume that she put on to lure men. It's not clear that she's a prostitute, but the Pharisees' reaction to her would indicate that she may very well have been. It was sacrificial financially. What she brought cost her something. In Isaiah 29, 13, King David is about to build an altar for the Lord. And this dude's trying to give him the threshing floor. Give it to him. And David stops him and says, I'm not going to take it. I need to, buy, I need to buy it. David says, I will not offer something to my Lord that has cost me nothing. I think I said that was in Isaiah, and that's not true. It's in 2 Samuel 24. It was costly. 
It was sacrificial to her. The other thing it was, not only financially costly, it was emotionally costly. She was a mess and everyone in the room saw it. It cost her emotionally to do that. Her worship was sacrificial. Her worship was emotional. Make no mistake about it, she wasn't stoic (laughs) in the moment. She was kind of this combination of bravery and undoneness at the same time. Her worship was emotional. In Joel chapter 2, the Lord says through the prophet Joel, Rend me your heart, not your garments. And what that means is, the Israelites used to tear their clothing in repentance. And God says, I don't want your clothing. I don't want your exterior. I don't want the outer part of you. I want the inner part of who you are. That's what I'm after. And then in Isaiah 29, that's the reference that I mentioned earlier. That's where Isaiah says on behalf of the Lord, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So what about us? As a church, as a congregation here at Bridgeway, when we walk through these doors, are we bringing something that's sacrificial? Are we bringing something to the Lord that's emotional? Maybe for some of us, um, it's time to start participating in the financial offerings here. Maybe you haven't done that. That's a wild and crazy way to worship the Lord. And it costs something. And we're all afraid to do it. Or perhaps you just need to be here every weekend. Perhaps you need to stop looking at those in your household saying, are we going to church this weekend? Because that's a ridiculous question. Maybe we just need to say, what service are we going to? We have a lot of options to choose from. Some of us won't even get out of bed and come here if the Niners are playing. And your king is worth so much more than that. So are we bringing a sacrifice? Are we bringing our emotions? Fourth, her worship was done in humility. Her worship was done in humility. Can you imagine? Here's this gal at the feet of Jesus doing what she's done. It boggles my mind, but I will suspect that Jesus never looked bigger than when she was there at his feet. I know he looked magnificent to someone who is forgiven. For us, maybe it means just coming somewhere near the foot of the cross that we'd remember what Christ did for us, that as we look up we would see in our mind's eye, the flesh of Christ's feet with spikes through it into a chunk of wood. Because from that point right there, Jesus looks spectacular. One of the challenges with us, though, is that our worship is not Christ-centric, and that's the next point. She was all in in this moment. She was completely focused on Christ. The reality is, I don't think she even knew or cared that anybody else was in the room in that moment. And as I mentioned before, I think it's pretty cool that Christ was focused on her as well. But I think sometimes, if you're anything like me, you come in here and you're totally distracted. Not only by life, but also just by sometimes the stuff in the room. That we're making some effort to worship God and yet we're not even focused on Him. We're focused on the people around us. It could be everything and anything from, huh, look what he's wearing. To, 
I don't know, any number of different things that are a distraction. You know what yours are. I don't know what yours are. I know what mine are. I'll be honest with you, as a worship leader, it's very, very hard for me to turn my filter off. When I come into a room, many times I'm, I'm in the back, and it isn't always even critical. Sometimes I'm just I'm going, ooh, yeah, Jake, do that. Ooh, yeah, that was really good. Ooh, yeah, more of that. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And in some strange way, my focus is on Jake instead of on Christ. What about us? Her worship was an act of service. She was engaged in an act of service of washing Jesus' feet. Now, what's funny is, um, she would have expected, I think, for the Pharisee to do that or someone in his own household to do that, but she saw the need and she responded in that moment. And there's some of us in this room right now who really have no specific ministry or area of service here at Bridgeway. Some of us are just coming through the door, spectating, and I'm just going to tell you simply, there's something for you to do here. God wants to use you to impact the lives of people in the community, and part of our worship should be an act of service. You guys doing okay? (laughs) So her worship was intentional, it was sacrificial, it was emotional, it was done in humility, It was fully Christ-centric, and it was an act of service. Those were the components of worship that I saw as I read through the passage. But there were also critics of worship that evening, namely Simon the Pharisee. Simon did two things that I think sometimes we fall into. The first thing was that he, he minimized his own sin. Remember how I was on my way with my son and we were talking about the different levels of sin? Somehow, some way, Simon saw this woman as a bigger sinner than himself. I think sometimes we do that. I think sometimes we minimize or justify our sin. We kind of feel like, come on, I'm a trampoline pusher. It's not that big of a deal. Simon the Pharisee actually... Ironically enough, on this particular night, his pride and arrogance on that night, he was actually sinning in the presence of Christ. Blows me away. And yet I have to ask myself, how many times have I done that? How many times have I walked through this door with my own sin, my own baggage, and and actually didn't bring it to leave it? I brought it, kind of tucked it comfortably around me, and then after the message, picked it up and walked right back out with it, packed it in my car, and took it back home again. And maybe it's deceit. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's trampoline pushing. I don't know what your deal is, but Simon was minimizing his own sin, and she was fully aware of what she'd been saved from because of her sin, her sinfulness. She was aware of it and pouring out this heart of gratitude because she knew she was a sinner. Simon didn't. The other thing that Simon did, and sometimes we do this, I mentioned it earlier, was that he was focused on her, not on Christ. He's got his maker, potential savior, at his dining room table, and he missed it. He invited him there, and he missed it. How many times do we show up here and 
just kind of go through the motions and miss the fact that we could have encountered the living God in this place together. But we were so focused on everything but Christ that we missed the opportunity. There's a passage in the New Testament in Romans chapter 12 that just hit me as I was going through this Luke chapter 7 passage this week. I thought, you know, there's one verse that comes to mind for me that summarizes this whole thing. It's an incredible picture of what authentic, heartfelt worship looks like. Turn with me. I don't have the page number for you, but uh, turn with me to Romans 12. You know this verse. You've probably heard it a hundred times, many of you. Romans 12.1. Listen to this passage, this verse, and consider what this woman did. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. That's what she was doing. Everything she was doing was in view of God's mercy. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. In that moment, as she poured out her heart to God, she was holy, covered by forgiveness. And what she did was actually pleasing to God. How about us? What about next weekend when we roll in here? Are we willing to be intentional, sacrificial, emotional, humiliated for our King, Christ-centric, and ready to serve? We're going to land this thing. I got a couple minutes. I just want to walk you through a couple concluding points today. It's funny that she showed up with something for Christ that day. She received exactly what she needed from Christ. She kind of got what she expected from the others, but she received what she needed from Christ. He didn't reject her. He welcomed and accepted what she offered. She brought what she had, her perfume, her lips, her hair, and her tears, and he blessed her. She came believing, anticipating, hoping, and she left on a path towards peace. That was the last thing Jesus said to her was, go in peace. I think that's very cool. She came into the room that night filled with fear and anxiety. And what did she leave with? Peace. That's awesome how God does that. She didn't come to get peace. She came to bring something to Him. But in God's tricky economy, He gave her something. He's awesome that way. So next week, As we gather, let's come with intentions of offering him something. Let's not come in delusional like somehow all of this is for us. Because it's not. It's for the king. Our voices, our hearts, our service, our breath. For your savior. And as we come in, and as we engage in authentic, heartfelt worship like she did, you know what you're going to leave with? Peace going to wash over you and you're going to be blown away at God's economy and think <laughs> he did it to me again because that's how he rolls five takeaways worship is for sinners let's remember that it's for sinners and if we lose sight of the fact that we're a sinner 
our worship is not going to be so sweet. Worship takes place at the feet of Jesus. Worship is a preoccupation with the person of Jesus Christ. Worship is an act of service and sacrifice. And it certainly involves our emotions, just like it did for this gal in Luke 7. You guys good? You good? Let me pray for us and uh, we'll get out of here. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you minister to us, that it is alive and active and changes lives. Lord, you're very sweet to us. You're compassionate and merciful. Help us, God, to shed this critical spirit that we have. It is so contrary to your design. Purge the critical spirit. Help us to not focus on others, but to focus on how spectacular you are. Till we gather again, God, help us to honor you with what we say and what we do. In Christ's name we pray.